Um, your word is so amazing that it is a living word that speaks to our hearts when other words do not, that captures us and catches us when we need to be caught, that confronts us if we need confrontation from you. And I pray today that your word uh, would ring out in truth that I would be out of the way and not cause any distraction or confusion, but that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts today from your word. We uh, give these moments to you, Lord. We give our attention to you uh, that you would be able to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Abraham had trusted God completely for 36 years, and now it had come to this. God told him to offer up his son Isaac as a blood sacrifice. Imagine. 36 years earlier, he had committed his life to the Lord God, Jehovah, when God told him to leave his people and to venture out to a land that I will show you. At 75 years old, Anybody in here 75 years old or older? Two people in here that I see hands. Three, okay. Now they're coming out, okay. <laughs> At 75 years old, God said, move. Leave everything except what you can carry. And I'll tell you where we're going later. Don't even know. Okay. So he trusted God. And at 75 years old, he believed God, and he began this journey with his wife, Sarah, this amazing journey of faith. He went from Ur of the Chaldees, kind of over near present-day Iraq, in that area, all the way up around the north and back down into the Promised Land, Israel. But the journey was about a lot more than a change in geography, wasn't it? <laughs> Bigger than geography change. It's better than moving from one place to another. It was a change that was going on inside of him. God had promised this older couple that they would have a child together. And that child would be the beginning of a nation of people. Yea, nations upon nations of people. In 25 years, Abraham had not seen that promise fulfilled. He had believed God, trusted God for 25 years. From 75 years old until he was nearly 100. And finally... After all of that time, Isaac was born. Sarah conceived, had this child. Now about another 11 years have passed, and Genesis 22 tells us how God commanded Abraham to take the boy with him to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him there to God as an act of worship and devotion, to kill his son and offer him up to God. I'm sure Abraham couldn't understand why God demanded something he had never demanded before. But somehow in faith, he obeyed. Hebrews 11.19 tells us that Abraham reasoned in his mind that if God required him to kill Isaac, then God could raise his son back to life. So he's kind of thought this through. This is horrible. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But if he dies, God can bring him back to life. And so he completely, tragically, faithfully obeyed what God had commanded. He went up to the top of the mountain. He built an altar. He bound his son with ropes. 
he laid him upon the altar, and he took out his knife in his hand, was about ready to kill his son when God finally stopped him from striking the boy. And God substituted a ram for the sacrifice, and told Abraham to let his son go. God said, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now on one hand, I read this story, I can't believe that God asked him to do such a horrible thing. I mean, God said he abhorred the sacrifices of the, the neighboring peoples you know, who sacrificed their children to their false gods. And now he's requiring the same thing. Somehow that doesn't seem right. On the other hand, after we know the end of the story, since we can look back on the story, not experience as Abraham did at the beginning of the story, we can somewhat appreciate what God did. Because he didn't really require Abraham to kill his son after all. And in fact, God said, I want you to understand what I will require of myself. Thought about that? What he did not require of Abraham, he later required of himself in that he sacrificed his one and only son, Jesus, on the cross for us. Bottom line, Abraham is a great example of someone with faith who did something because of his faith. I want you to think about that. Because of his faith, he did something. Now, as we continue this Life App series from the book of James, we have a question. What is faith? And how important is faith? Today's text, James 2, 14 through 26, is one of the primary passages of the Bible about faith. In these 13 verses, James uses the word faith 11 times. So it's a pretty big topic here. What is faith? Well, faith is believing in something or someone. It's putting your trust and confidence in them. Hebrews 11.1 pretty well defines faith. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Apostle Paul told the Christians at Rome, he said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And he wrote to the church at, at Thessalonica. He said, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and your love is abounding for one another. In today's passage, we are confronted then with some pretty pointed questions about faith. Is our faith alive? First question. Second question. Does our faith work? Does it do anything? Third question. Is our faith growing? Or has it in fact not changed very much for the last 10, 20, or 30 years? Where are we? What about our faith? Please note the title of this message in our Life App series, Faith That Saves is Faith That Works. For me, making a distinction between a faith that saves and a faith that works after you save shouldn't even, that discussion shouldn't happen. We, we don't need to talk about that. And yet, we do, because there's confusion. You know, I think that if you have genuine faith, a faith that's going to save you, then you already have a faith that works. can't have one without the other. If it doesn't work, then it isn't genuine faith. Faith that saves 
and faith that works are one and the same thing, the way I look at it, the way I think the Bible pictures it. Faith is faith. <laughs> if you have the genuine article, if you have the real deal, then it is a faith that saves you and a faith that causes you to obey God and to work for God. But somehow in our generation, <laughs> there are a lot of people confused on this issue. Seems that there are many people who have mustered enough faith to get saved. But now they think they can coast their way through to heaven. <laughs> they professed faith in Jesus at some point in their lives, but there is little or no evidence of faith's activity in their lives now. Is it possible, this is a question I'm wrestling with, is it possible that there are a lot of people who think they have faith that don't? That don't have the genuine faith that the Bible is talking about? Is it possible that there are a lot of people that don't have the real deal? Faith that saves is faith that works. And so right up here, uh, up front, I want to make it very clear about something so you don't misunderstand me. I'll probably say it a couple times. That saving faith is not what we do to get saved. We are only saved by God's grace. And that grace is extended to us when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So let's, let's understand that. This is, this is the saving faith part of it. You are not saved by what you did. You're not saved by your righteousness. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved because you're better than someone else and you didn't ever sin the way that they did. All of that. I know that we can't do anything to save ourselves. We cannot earn our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. God saves us because of what Jesus has already done, not because of what we might do or what we could ever do. Our faith and confidence are in Him, not in us. Okay, so let's, let's kind of lay that out there as a foundational understanding. But I do believe that the faith that receives salvation is the same faith that we build upon later as we grow in Christ. Faith doesn't change somehow in substance or, or character, or however you want to put it. Uh, between the time that we accept Jesus as Savior of our life and the weeks and months that follow our salvation. You know, it's like you have this thing of faith and then you have a different kind of faith. You just have faith. When you come to faith in Christ, if it's legitimate, if it's real, if it's the genuine article, then that faith continues in your life and you continue to obey God and to work for God. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we say Savior and Lord, when we believe in Him as our Savior to save us, we also accept Him or receive Him or make Him, commit to Him as our Lord, as our leader. And when we accept the salvation that he offers us, we must also surrender to his leadership, his lordship, right? And if you don't, that's the problem. If you think you can just you know, take the goodies and run, and there's no relationship with Christ, you're fooling yourself. That's what I want us to think about today. That's what I want us to talk about today. And I hope you see what I'm saying. I hope you see a distinction that we want to make today. Because I want to make that very clear to everybody as we look at this together. Let me put it a different way. There is a crucial difference between those who make a profession of faith but keep on living the same way they've always lived and those whose lives, when they meet Jesus, uh, when they meet Jesus take a dramatic turn toward God. 
There's a difference. A crucial difference. The Bible calls this change of both heart and mind and lifestyle repentance, doesn't it? talks about changing your mind, changing the way you look at things, changing your very life. We, we sometimes define repentance as turning from sin to follow God. You were going one direction and you turned back to God. You realize that what you were doing is not the right thing, so now you're going to pursue the right thing that God wants you to do. Repentance is our willingness to have our lives turned completely upside down by God if that's what's required. And so if you have faith in Christ, repentance is part of that, the big part of that, the willingness to be actually converted, to be changed by the power of God. There's a crucial difference between those who are satisfied with what they did to receive Christ way back when somewhere, and those whose lives still demonstrate obedience and trust in God right up to today. One's faith, James is going to call dead, and the other's is very much alive. There is a crucial difference even in churches. A crucial difference between those churches that make it as easy as possible to get saved and those churches where the invitation to Jesus is realistic. Realistic about the true cost of following Jesus for the rest of your life. You probably know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you hear some people talking about this, some churches, some preachers talking about this, and they're offering this invitation for people to receive Christ but they make it as easy as it can possibly be. And they do that because of God's grace. They're trying to communicate that. But the picture that is given is, it really doesn't require anything from you. You don't have to make any commitment. It's not going to change your life or anything. Just, just do this one thing, and you're going to be okay. And so I, I've been in some places where people just say, you know, if you'll just say this prayer, you'll be good to go. Or if you will just hold up your hand and let me pray for you out there in the crowd somewhere. If you want to receive Christ, just do that. And then you're good to go. You're fine. Your ticket's been punched. You're ready for heaven. And it's like, it's just as easy as we can make it. And I, I don't know what the reasons are. I don't want to, you know, check motives of somebody in doing that. But I don't believe that's true in, in, in uh, following what the Word of God says. When I hear people preaching the Gospel in the New Testament, it's hard line. When I see Jesus speaking to somebody, it's very different. So be very careful when you listen to preachers and teachers today uh, that, that the faith that they're preaching is kind of this watered-down faith of merely agreeing or affirming who Jesus is, but there's no surrender going on. No surrender of your life. No commitment to Jesus Christ to make Him the Lord of your life. No, no dramatic, undeniable, life-changing faith is what they're talking about. It's, it's just easy-peasy. And while salvation is easy, that we don't earn it, Jesus already did it, what is asked of us as his follower is, is much more than that. We can only be saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but the faith we express in him must be full surrender to his lordship from that day on. Remember when Jesus described what it meant to follow him? Remember? He put it pretty dramatically. He put it emphatically. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for me 
will save it. And he's not talking about saving yourself. He's talking about commitment and surrender and the relationship that now we are his follower. So here's a question for today. I want you to wrestle through and I'll wrestle through for me. Do we have the real deal? This thing called faith. This, do we have the genuine article? If we do, then our faith is living and active. Our faith obeys God. Our faith works for God. Our faith is growing in God. Faith that saves is faith that works. Now, that was a pretty big introduction to our reading today. Sorry for that. But let's go to James chapter 2. Because I wanted to kind of lay this groundwork before we get into what James says. Because it jumps right into it and he just says it really hard and fast as we get to James chapter 2 verse 14. Let's turn now and read what God's Word says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Answer, there is no. Okay. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I'm going to repeat that last line. Faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, James, again, is not saying we can save ourselves by giving clothing or food or anything else to someone else. And we can't save ourselves by our good deeds. These follow the salvation we have been given through Christ. He's not teaching salvation by works. But what he is saying, it is pointless, as well as heartless and cruel, to say to a brother, go in peace, and yet refuse to help him with the very things God has given us so that we can help him. Then we're not even doing what, what we already could do. If your brother or sister is destitute, and you send them away empty-handed, James says, while you are living in plenty, where is the evidence of your faith? Where is the proof? What are you doing to show that you trust God to take care of you and now you can help take care of your brother? James correctly concludes, in the same way, faith with no actions is pointless. Faith, in the same way, in that case, would be dead. I don't know, we don't really like to talk about death very much, but dead is dead. Um, one of the graphics I thought about putting up, I thought it would be just too traumatizing, was a picture I saw in the morgue and the feet of somebody sticking out, you know, of their, their slot in the morgue and it's got a tag on it and doesn't have their name, it has the word faith. <laughs> but that's a powerful graphic, but I think that's too much. So I just talked about it instead. <laughs> and then traumatize you with the visual image. But death is death. We don't talk about it. And James uses a word that is so strong here. If you think that you have faith, but your brother comes to you and he needs help, and you turn him away, and you have no heart for that, that faith is dead. It could be many other expressions of that, but what he's looking for here is the evidence, the demonstration of a faith that you say that you have. If there's no evidence, your faith is not faith. It's dead. Could it be more clear? Let's go on. Verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. 
New paragraph. This is important. You get a distinction here. You have faith, I have deeds. That's what they say. Then James goes on and he says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So here James is just simply emphasizing what he's already said. What you say about your faith doesn't matter. It's what you do with your faith that matters. And what about verse 19? You believe that there is one God good? Even the demons believe that and shudder. If faith is simply mentally agreeing that God is God and Jesus is the only Savior of the world, then the demons themselves will be saved. That's the point he's making. If it's just a matter of knowing that God is God and knowing that Jesus is the only Savior, the demons say, check that off, I got that one. Nobody knows better than Satan and his demons that God is God. Nobody knows better than Satan and his demons that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the Lord. But they have not chosen to follow him. They have chosen to duke it out with him, to, to rebel. And they're trying to take as many with us into hell as they possibly can. They've chosen to oppose him, not, not to serve him. So genuine faith chooses to obey God, chooses to serve God, not just agrees with truth about God. So let's just kind of step back from our text today. We're going to go on down through verse 26, the end of the chapter. Let's step back a little bit and let's kind of review where we are. James is trying to point out several things about faith. He's going to describe faith for us. First of all, he's going to describe two things that it's not. And then he's going to describe two things that it is. One of which we already looked at when we looked at the story of Abraham. And we're going to see that again in a moment. First of all, he says, faith is not seeing your brother or sister in need and doing nothing to help them. Faith is not a do-nothing thing. Secondly, he says, faith is not merely agreeing that God is God, since even demons can do that. And then thirdly, he says, here's what faith is. Faith is believing like Abraham did when he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. And faith, fourthly, is believing like Rahab did when she protected God's people as they spied out Jericho. So let's, let's go on down to verse 20 of chapter 2 James of James. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And then the story of Rahab, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Obviously, as we read his story, as we thought of Abraham's story, here's a great example of someone with faith. Someone who did something with their faith. But do you know the story of Rahab? 
Rahab's story is told to us starting in Joshua chapter 2. The Israelites are getting ready to cross over the Jordan River and to take possession of the promised land. God has promised this for many years. They resisted, spent 40 years in the wilderness. They've come back to a point in time they're ready to do this. They're ready to trust God for this. And so they're going against the city of Jericho. And they send out their spies to check out what's going on in the city. And when they get there, they find out the people are all scared to death of the Israelites. Everybody's just living in fear, like, well, the Israelites are going to come after us because we've heard how powerful they are. We've heard that God's with them and so on. And they come to the household of Rahab. She's a citizen of Jericho, the very city the Israelites are about to destroy through God's supernatural power. And when the two Jewish spies come into the city, she found out who they were while the authorities were looking for them. And so she says, come in and I'll hide you. I'll protect you. And she hid them in her house. She told the authorities that they must have already left town. They must have already escaped the city. And so they go off running out of the city trying to find these two spies. After they've gone, she brings out the spies from their hiding place and she tells them, now you can make a run for it. They're going to be looking for you for a few days, so just kind of hide out for about three days and then make your way back to your people. But I want you to remember that I protected you. I want you to remember that I provided a place of, of secrecy and security for you. Because I want to, I want you to remember me and my family so that we'll be saved when you destroy this city. And so they make an agreement, a covenant with her, that if she'll just hang the scarlet cord out of the window of her house, which is on the city wall, that their family would not be destroyed. Her family would be spared while the rest of the city is destroyed. And that's exactly how it turns out. The rest of the city collapses. They kill everybody in sight except for Rahab and her family. Interestingly enough, she later appeared in the genealogy of Jesus. Did you know that? Because she becomes part of that line that led up to the Messiah, Jesus. Her faith in God, the God whom she barely knew, saved herself and her family and earned her place in the Messianic line. It is a fabulous story of faith. Faith that did something again. So here's the bottom line for today's message here in James 2. Do we have such faith? Do we have genuine faith? The faith that leads to salvation and the faith that obeys God and works for God. Do we stand out in a crowd like Abraham who trusted God when the odds were against him, when no one else believed that he and Sarah could possibly have a child at 99 and 100 years old? Do we have faith like Rahab that while the rest of the people in Jericho were trusting in their false gods and goddesses, she alone trusted in the God of the Jews? She put her hope in Jehovah. Do we have a faith that works? Do we have a living faith that continues believing in and obeying God day after day? Do we have genuine faith? Or are we, as someone pictured it, cardboard Christians? Think about that for a moment. You know what cardboard figures are. Cardboard sports heroes, movie stars that you may have seen in 7-Eleven or the grocery store. The figure may be a NASCAR driver or maybe famous movie actor or politician. It may be David Beckham or George Clooney or Mr. Bean. <laughs> if you've been down on the mall in D.C., I remember being down there last time and they had these figures of President Obama and Michelle's wife, you know, and 
and they look very real as you're walking up to it. It's like, are they out here on the street? You know, what's going on? And you realize it's just this two-dimensional image. And if somebody's standing there as a vendor saying, you want to have your picture taken, of course, there's a charge for that. But you can stand next to them and feel like, man, it looks to me on a flat photograph, it looks like I was there with them on the street of Washington, D.C. A few years ago, someone outside a 7-Eleven mistook a cardboard figure like this for a real person and called 911 to report a robbery. Of course, the police came roaring up, you know, lights and sirens and scared everybody in the store. Like, what's going on? What's going on? They said, we thought there was a robbery. Now, it's just this cardboard figure there next to the cash register. It looks so real when you're at a distance or maybe when you're just face on, but they are a flat image. They're two-dimensional. If you walk around the back, there's cardboard back there. And if you try to grab it, it falls over. It's not real at all. But it gives the appearance of being real. Are we cardboard Christians? Do we look like the real deal, but we're not? Do we convince others of our faith that's not real? Is our faith an empty shell of real faith? Are we wearing a mask? What is it about us? If you look at the back of your bulletin today, if you have one with you, uh, you see something that we've talked about several times. It's called the four-chair discipleship plan. Um, up on the screen, you see the four chairs. The whole point of it is, are you moving? Are you growing? Are you becoming? Because faith is not something you park yourself in the first chair and just stay there the rest of your life and say, oh, I'm okay. You know, faith, the first chair is really just seeking out Christ, just figuring out who He is and do I want Him to become the Lord and Savior of my life? Am I willing to surrender my life to Him? And between the first chair and the second chair is the cross of Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, trust Him for salvation, then you get into the second chair. But that's not a place to park and relax and be at peace for eternity. Simply a place to grow and you start getting your feet on the ground. You figure out how to to read the Bible for yourself and understand and to pray and become part of a small group and, and all the different pieces of that to where you're, you're growing this thing inside of you that is new, that is a seed that has to grow and sprout and, and produce some fruit. And the third seed is all about serving God and finding a place of ministry and what you can do to, to advance the cause of Christ and to grow the kingdom together as a body of, of, of Christians, as a body of believers. And the fourth chair is how do I reach back? How do I help others who are still back at one or two or three? How can I mentor? How can I coach? How can I encourage? What can I do to enlarge and expand and multiply what the kingdom of God is doing because now faith is being multiplied in me and through me. This is a, a very simple diagram, very simple process, but the question is still so hard. Have you found a chair you like and you're just going to stay there? You can't do that. That's not an option. And if you have the faith that saves, you have the faith that moves. You have the faith that works, the faith that obeys. And if you don't, James says, guess what? Your faith is dead. It doesn't exist. Hard. 
Hard message. See, faith in God is like a muscle. <laughs> if you don't exercise it, if you don't use it, it loses its strength. Eventually, it just atrophies. It's no good to you at all. Might as well not have it. But when you exercise that muscle, it grows. It gets stronger. It becomes bigger, more productive, more effective. My friend Terry Wallen died tragically while on a trip with a high school youth group for my home church. Um, we had both been past youth group days, both become husbands and fathers, still would check in on him whenever I go back home to visit my parents and see him and his wife, Jackie, saw their children. And I was so excited to hear that he had become part of the youth group team. He was one of the sponsors. And uh, Terry just loved to do that as a volunteer. Well, they had come up to Grundy, Virginia to work at Mountain Mission School, uh, one of the missions we have supported various times here in this church. And they were just there for a summer uh, week of mission to, to paint things, clean up things, help the campus, whatever. And they were staying out at Brakes Interstate Park. Any of you ever been down there? I call it Interstate Park because the, the park kind of goes both into Virginia and Kentucky. And very southwest corner of Virginia. And they're staying out there at a beautiful campground and driving over to Mountain Mission School and working every day. Well, Terry's this experienced... You call him a repellist or a repeller. I don't, I don't know. But you know what repelling is? You, know, you have the ropes and you have uh, things you tie it on and you just come off the side of a, a cliff and you work your way down to the bottom with the ropes securing your thing and everything. He's very, very, uh, very experienced with this. He was actually using it as a time to teach some of the teens and they were going to learn on some smaller places and then go to some bigger places if they really excelled and so on. So he had the whole thing. You taught them down on the ground. And this day that he died, they were up on top of this cliff, maybe 100 feet high, and Terry's saying, okay, well, I'm going to show you what to do, then you're going to learn how to do this eventually. So it's kind of an inspirational kind of speech. And some way he hooked himself up that when he jumped off that thing, he went straight to the bottom. He never was stopped at all by the, by the rigging. He just died. Or say, all ran down the trail to help him. It's too late. He's gone by the time they got there. And yeah, it made me sick to hear that, how this happened. I still get sick just thinking about it, you know, uh, because we were the same age. We graduated high school together, and I still see his wife when I go home and his kids who are now grown. And I think, what what might have been, you know, just just a tragedy. Terry knew what to do, didn't he? He knew how to be safe. He taught safety to other people about this repelling thing. He knew better than to tie the knots the way that he did. But somehow that day he made a deadly mistake. He did it wrong. He failed to do what he knew to do. See where I'm going with this? I hope we don't make the same mistake with faith. In James 2.14, James simply asks a question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Answer, he doesn't give. He knows the answer. You know the answer. No. Faith that saves is faith that works. If your faith is not doing anything, if your faith is not growing, 
If you're not moving, if you're not obeying, if you're not serving the Lord, you need to really stop and think, can, can I just ask you a question? Why not? Why not? Faith that saves is the same faith that works and keeps on growing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you can speak to our hearts in such a direct way. It may be confrontational. It may be even in some ways offensive. But it's exactly what we may need to hear. And if we are here today, Lord, and our faith is stagnant, our faith is dead, we need revival by your Spirit. We need the right kind of faith. We need the genuine article, the real deal. And I pray today that each person will evaluate their own lives and allow your Holy Spirit to confront where they are and to help them to see how they may need to move closer to you and how they may need to obey you in an area where they've been resisting and even rebelling against you. Maybe maybe there's some uh, growing that needs to happen in their lives and somehow they've stopped that because it was too difficult or because there wasn't enough time or whatever excuse was given. Lord, today, help us to see that faith that saves, if it is real faith, is also a faith that works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.